welcome to this episode of Stories of Strange Women. We're your hosts. I'm Tanya Hurley. And I'm Tracy Hurley-Martin. And today we have the privilege of welcoming artist Amanda Palmer. And she was kind enough and generous enough to open up her home to us. Her in, magical home. Yeah, in Woodstock um, that she shares with her husband, Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely sublime. And uh, she made she us... She makes a mean cup of coffee. She made us really good coffee, yeah. too. But she is someone who doesn't let anything stop her. She, mm-hmm. if, if, if a way doesn't exist, she finds another... She finds a way. Mm-hmm. She is a woman who finds a way. Mm-hmm. She creates um, no matter what, by any means. And she... That makes her punk. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. I mean, from her time starting out as a statue when she was a statue in Harvard Square to make money, mm-hmm. um, to her time in the Dresden Dolls, uh, the punk cabaret band. And it's Dresden always Dolls. been for her, I think, about connecting with people, either, you know, when she was a statue, not saying anything, but that eye, the connection uh, eye, eye contact. that she would make with people. In the Dresden Dolls, it was, you mm-hmm. know, a collective where they would couch surf and, you know, and, and, and have people join them on mm-hmm. tour and everybody dresses up. It's yeah. always She's been... She's created a community, yeah. really, it's, and it's a give and take. A very tight-knit, strong mm-hmm. community that's growing exponentially. I think this, yeah. this week she added like something like 200 people to her Patreon. Yeah, if, 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 um, you, if you can, please check that out and... Um, think about giving because it's how she makes her living and she's she's an artist who was really trying to figure out i'm spending she was spending so much time trying to figure out how to sell her art and it was taking away from the art itself mm-hmm. and so that's when she 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 was the first really big person to do kickstarter she she raised over a million dollars on that so she's mm-hmm. the patron saint of crowd crowdfunding and now she's gone to patreon and she's just a generous person i mean mm-hmm. if you she teaches you how to ask and if you mm-hmm. ask she will abide you with know? her best-selling book new york times bestseller um the art of asking and the audiobook is uh, back on the 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 list the mm-hmm. bestseller list and if you if you um, get a chance to get this audiobook, we highly recommend it because it's a full-on experience. There's music. Um, it's more of a performance, and it, it's totally engaging. Mm-hmm. Like you feel like you're part of it with her, and um, it's it's definitely highly recommended by both of us. So, without further ado, this very open interview with Amanda Palmer about her personal life and her struggles um, and her triumphs and her triumphs and there are so many enjoy and many more to come so welcome Amanda thank you for inviting us into your amazing amazing space here magical space yeah thanks fire yeah Baby off at daycare. Coffee. coffee. Lots of coffee. Magical buildings. You came in the middle of a, a insane admin day. This actually feels like a little vacation. What's that mean? Uh, meaning I am glued to the internet and my email inbox today because I've been off it for a couple of weeks and today is mad. Hey, wait, up, back up. up you have been offline? You have I been ha- off email? No. 
but I haven't been in catch-up mode. Okay. I was doing a theater workshop for a week, and then I dedicated a whole weekend to Neil and Ash and just didn't sit down and do a lot of work, and today is hell day. Yeah, okay. Where you start, it's one of those days where you start every email. It, I'm so sorry that I haven't gotten back mm-hmm. to you. A copy and paste. Co- oh, yeah, <laughs> it's been one of those days. Yeah. What are you doing with the public theater? Are you doing something? I am. I'm writing a new musical. Really? <gasps> yeah. How are you doing that? I mean, how are you? Uh, it's a totally original, devised piece. Uh, I'm working with a, a musical co-writer, J- Jason Webley, who's an old, dear friend of mine. My favorite director in the world, Stephen Bogart, who's also a workshop guru. Uh, and we have the... Arc the bare foundation and architecture for an idea for a show. There's no songs yet. There's no dialogue yet. There's no nothing. There's just this concept of what this place is and how we're going to do it. It's a completely experimental format. It's not like a Broadway musical at all. It's really interactive and immersive with the audience. And, uh, and if we do our jobs right, Everyone in the house is going to be crying all night long. Wow, really? And we're going to pass out tissues. Sweet. And sing. Mm-hmm. So is it your is it your concept? Yeah. Yeah. So you're writing what they call it the book, right? Or- yeah. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a very strange musical. It's going to involve the audience. The audience is going to be on stage. The actors oh, are going wow. to be in the audience. There's going to be a lot of weirdness. So uh-huh. even the book is going to be kind of improv flexible. And how long are you, are you, are you on a certain deadline? Are you giving yourself a deadline or? It's going to be ready when it's ready. It won't be ready by the earliest would be like 2020. It's a huge project. Okay. Are you getting funding to? Well, the public theater is funding the creation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then we'll see. So you continue as the performing artist. Well, and the hope is I don't have to be in the show every night. The hope is once we write it and we launch it, we can you know, not have to do 300 performances of it Yeah, because that is a lot. I've done that, and it's it's like by the time you get to show 20 or 30, you're like, ah, I can't imagine. Kill me now. Well, you come from theater, right? I mean... Yeah, but I come from, like, weirdo street performance high school theater. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, it's not like I broke off Broadway and came into rock and roll. <laughs> right, right. They wouldn't have me on Broadway. <laughs> I'm too obnoxious. Yeah. Like, I would just be breaking all of their rules and... And, uh, so I really like, and like, if you look at my career, I just, I just never like doing the same thing twice. Yeah. So the idea of being in a Broadway musical, even a good one and having to do the same moves, the same role, the same songs, you know, 600 nights in a row is like my idea of hell. It's someone else wrote. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But you can't change. Yeah. I mean, you can play within it, but your boundaries are are one millimeter. So I... Yeah, I mean, even when I was in Cabaret, I was when I was the MC in Cabaret, and that was eight years ago, which is a very improvisational kind of role, if mm-hmm. you've ever seen Cabaret. Mm-hmm. I played mm-hmm. the Alan Cumming part. I played the MC. Mm-hmm. Even then, by the third week of the run, I was... Done. I was... I, I had to try really hard to keep myself from getting bored, but I, I was really glad that the run was only six weeks instead of six months, because I think if I had hit... 
you know, yeah. by month two, I would have been trying to squeech my way out of the contract. Yeah, I don't know how people do it. I don't know how people do it. Well, what's funny is even in rock and roll, there's certain rock shows that might as well be fucking Broadway shows mm -hmm. because everything is synced. Everything, there's, sim you know, the lights are timed mm -hmm. to the tracks and you have to literally pick up your guitar at 216 and then put it down and then say hello Cleveland. And I'm like, you might as well... You know, if you're in a giant touring band show, it, it might as well be Broadway because yeah. some shows are so tight. Yeah. And it doesn't, tight isn't bad, mm -hmm. but it's not what I love. Yeah. I love it's the not mess. what you do. Yeah. Yeah. So. Don't you get freaked out though a little bit? Don't you freak out? Do you ever get very out of your mind, nervous, panic attack? Like what, what the fuck am I doing? What am I going to do? Who do I think I am? <laughs> <laughs> uh... I think my ability to do this job is predicated on the fact that that very human, very natural fear didn't make it into the equation. Really? Well, when I was Teach younger, me your ways. when I was younger, I had stage fright, but I also I loved being on stage so much, and I still love being on stage so much that it's always a good fear. It's never the kind of fear, like the real fear of public speaking that people have in the real stage fright that people have. I think it, those are two different beasts. Mm -hmm. There's nervousness, you know, when I've, especially when I've played with symphony orchestras and I've learned, you know, mm -hmm. I once, the most nervous I've ever been going on stage is I learned two minutes of a Rachmaninoff piece and I'm not a classical player. I is been, that with bo the Boston Symphony? That was with the Boston Pops. Pops and I, yeah. you know, I practiced that shit for two months and was still terrible at it, but was like... I don't read sheet music. I have to retain mm -hmm. all of this music. It's even then it's only two minutes. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, even then I sabotaged myself and drank champagne before the show and was kind of terrible, but you know, those sorts of nerves don't happen to me very, very often, but it's also because I fucking spent my life on stage and it's like saying, so do you get nervous waking up and knowing that you have a 12 year old kid and that something yes. bad might happen to your kid? Yes. It's like, yes, but you also get used to it. Yeah. You don't yeah. get up in the morning and go, oh no, I have a kid. What if my kid dies? Like, yes, that's always in the back there. But you also just like get up and fucking plug shit in and make mm -hmm. toast and mm -hmm. get on with it because you just have to live with a certain degree of nerves. And denial. Well, and just, it's more like bold acceptance of the fact that you can't control how anything is going to go. I can freak myself out if I stop and really think about the neuroscience behind memory and the fact that I could be on stage halfway through cabaret with thousands of dollars of ticket holders and literally yeah. one synapse I'm, my, I'm having a one attack. synapse fires wrong and you totally drop the ball on a, you know, $100,000 worth of production. But that's a thing. There's so much money on it, the line. It right? could happen. And you know it could happen, and you do it anyway, which is why you get paid and other people don't and mm -hmm. sell shoes. Like, okay. you're willing to go like, So oh, we're yeah. shoe salesmen. <laughs> yeah, that's fine <laughs> That's basically me. what you're no, saying. No, but Absolutely I mean, being fine. human is a yeah. version of this. Like, yeah. mm -hmm. the, you, that same synapse could misfire when you're crossing the fucking street and you could get hit by a bus. Okay, mm -hmm. we're going to get back to death because <laughs> death <laughs> that's our, our favorite, favorite topic. topic. Yeah. Um, I said, I told you you were the morose one. Yeah, anyway. she is. <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, I am. Listen, you, um, were saying something, oh, about how, cause we always have, we've always had each other cause we're twins. So I find it fascinating that you're doing all this stuff on your own, like at a young age from when you first started, like you didn't need 
people around you. You didn't need a friend there to say, hey, you can be a statue on Harvard Square. And you just you just did it by yourself. You stood up on the box by yourself and faced rejection over and over and over but again. I, but I also didn't. I also had an incredible best friend who I talk about a lot in my book. Anthony. Anthony. Mm-hmm. And I had enough support structures underneath me, even if they weren't next to me holding my hands. That's hand what saying, I mean. They weren't there, though. They weren't. Really- yeah, but I, I, uh, I liked that. I mean, you can understand because, you know, like we were talking about with Vince, like certain... Certain artists will have certain personality types and certain personality types will be artists. And I'm, and and I see this, there's these huge paradoxes, especially with Neil, because we're so alike and we're so different. And Neil fashions himself a real introvert. It's how he introduces himself to people. (laughs) And I, you know, have been told all my life that I'm a real extrovert, but I don't really feel like one. And I think when you're an intense artist, You have, on the one hand, your desire to make work, and all work is pretty much made in solitude, most kinds of work, Mm -hmm. you know. Even collaborating musical songwriters have to sit down and think Mm -hmm. with their own brains, even if someone is over on the other side of the room. Um, And then, like, on the other extreme, you've got what Neil does, which is, like, hours and hours and hours and hours of time spent alone at a desk with a novel. Mm -hmm. And... And yet, when Neil, you know, when Neil is peeled back a little bit, he's super social. He cries and dies if he doesn't get enough human attention and interaction and praise and all the things that artists kind of live for. And I'm Mm -hmm. the same way. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it is just like how we're, you know, how we're told we are as kids, how it's convenient to present ourselves to the world, what we have to do in order to survive socially at certain times. You know, it can be really convenient to say that you're an introvert when you just need everyone to fuck off because you need to get shit done. So I find it endlessly fascinating looking at me and Neil and the other artists that we know and the other people that we know and the personalities. And it's also just like you have times when you need to be introverted. You have times when you desperately want to be extroverted. You need energy. You need help. You need support. Mm. You know, like even when having a child, I felt so much of that. I wanted so, I felt a kind of introversion that I'd never felt before because I was just so happy to be alone with this baby. And I needed more help than I'd ever needed in my life. Mm -hmm but I needed it in a certain way. I didn't need to be at a party. I needed people to come over and just do a dish mm-hmm, and yeah. pick up a towel for me because I was losing my mind. And so, you know, even when you define yourself, it falls apart and you have to put it back together again every five minutes. Mm-hmm. So how how were you raised? I mean, because it's, you know, that's being told you, where where did this confidence come from where you could take risks like that, where you could put yourself out there was it a very well? I was the nurturing. F- I was uh, kind of the youngest of four, but I had two older steps who weren't totally in the mix. So I had an older stepbrother who was um, seven years older, and an older stepsister who was nine years older, and then I had a full older sister who was four years older. But even though my steps weren't always living in the house, it was, you know, they were there on weekends and we spent vacations together and they were sort of, you know, they were in the mix, but they weren't right there at the dinner table every single night. I was at the bottom of the pile a lot. And I think I had that last child 
or second, even it's even a second child uh, tendency to be more spontaneous, more free spirited. My parent, you know, the hammer wasn't coming down on me the way. Were they older too? When the, by the time they had you, were they? No, my mom was thirty two. Oh, okay. She was still pretty was. young. Yeah. Um, and. You know, and my stepdad was my stepdad from the time I was a year old. So the, the picture was sort of complete and I didn't have the disruption of a divorce the way my sister did. She was five. Um, but, you know, I think it was th that combination of sort of needing to wave my hands to get attention because I was the little one. Um, and also, you know, my sister, she, she just, she was given more rules by the time my mother had gone through the act of raising my sister. She was more lax. And I've heard that that's really typical. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you figure it out with the first one and with the second one, you're like, ah, fine. You know, my mm -hmm. sister was always irate with me because <laughs> I just, I, my mom was just more liberal with me. I was mm -hmm. allowed to have boyfriends sleep over. I was allowed to have all this stuff wow. that my sister didn't get because my mom had just kind of given up. She was mm -hmm. like, ah, yeah, you're going to have tired. sex anyway. You might as well yeah. do it in the house. Mm -hmm. I'm tired. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, you know, props to my mom. I think that was actually a good decision. Otherwise, I would have been in the backs of cars. Right. Um, so I think it was par it was partly that. And also, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, stick hit me when I was born. I just had the creative hunger. I loved art. I loved music. I loved drawing. I loved theater. You know, from the time I can remember, that's like the world that I was really drawn to. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas my sister was more science debate and you know intellectual that direction mm -hmm. and you know and my my family while they weren't an art family and they weren't a theater family they gave me all the space I needed to be creative they didn't totally understand it but they supported it hardcore and I think that that was really uh that was really important mm -hmm. because it didn't it doesn't you know when a kid's that age like 8 10 12 it doesn't take much push them off the path yeah. and you know and on the and on the flip side you know I I had a little if I had anything I was a little bit irritated with my mom in the oh my god my daughter is so talented she's so special she writes songs you should hear them I was just like fuck off like this is my thing go away yeah um and you know and I struggled with that and that actually pushed me inside. My songs were for me. They weren't for anyone else. My creativity was for me. But I knew that at a certain point I would blossom and I would go out in the real world because back then there was no internet. Everything that happened at home stayed at home. Mm -hmm. You couldn't upload it. There were no open mics in Lexington fucking Massachusetts. It was yeah. just like a waiting game of someday I will leave this house, I will leave this town, and I will find my art people. And so I was on a long-term mission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um... But, you know, I spent a lot of time, the more and more I look back at it, I spent a lot of time alone, a lot as a teenager, while other people were out with friends at parties, doing things, having best friends, going to sleepovers. I was writing letters at, to Christopher Lyons. <laughs> songs for Christopher Well, I was at home making mixtapes, mix listening to albums, transcribing mm -hmm. lyrics, writing songs, making like, my little Who were you listening fancies. to? I was listening to The Cure mm -hmm. and Depeche Mode and Yaz mm -hmm. and, you know, obscure goth music that my German boyfriend was getting me into. I was discovering Leonard Cohen and Nick Cave and PJ Harvey mm -hmm. and 
um, and, you know, Kurt Weill and musical theater music. And then as soon as I got into college, experimental music and John Cage and Laurie Anderson and, oh. you know, Lamont Young. And then I also was in a jazz program at high school. So I was being exposed to Thelonious Monk and Coltrane and all like, mm-hmm. I was a sponge for music and I studied classical music in college. So that was all Scriabin and Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms and mm-hmm. like... I, you know, I took in a lot of music, plus all the pop culture, you know, and every mm-hmm. John Hughes movie and every movie soundtrack and, um, you know, a lot of music, a lot of music came in through commercials and TV and just the environment. So I, you know, I've been writing a lot about this on my blog lately, especially like I just wrote a blog a few days ago about how I didn't realize how heavily I'd been influenced by Weird Al but I was. Mm-hmm. He introduced me to entire genres of music that I wasn't listening to. And I didn't even know that he He's was educating me because I didn't right? even He's a realize. Very smart guy, mm-hmm. right? Totally. And yeah. I didn't even realize I wrote, you know, Mr. Pope Heal, which was one of the songs I think on in 3D. I didn't realize it was a B-52s parody. I just knew it was this cool, weird song by Weird Al. It wasn't until uh-huh. I saw him in concert last week where I was like, holy shit, that's the B-52s <laughs> parody, of course. And, you know, I didn't realize that um, that uh, Velvet Elvis was a was a police ripoff. Like, I just didn't know because right. I hadn't heard mm-hmm. the originals yet. Mm-hmm. So I, I was, and I was, I was over at Art Spiegelman's house in New York the other night. I was telling him this. I was there the day after I saw the show and he was mm-hmm. like, ah, it's not just you. It's not just music. I was... I was raised by parody. I was raised by Mad Magazine. I saw the copy before the original. But there's something really beautiful about that because the copy and the parody has the essence of the thing itself Mm -hmm. because that's what makes it a good parody. Right. So, wow. yeah, and the older older I get, the more I'm like, man, and like Judy Blume influenced me. I had never really thought about that. Like all these things that were just floating around in the environment that I took for granted. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, because it used to be in my 20s, I would give this stock list of influences. Right. Like the Cure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nick Cave. Well, of course, but that's this one little yeah, narrow yeah. bandwidth of shit that was coming into my head. Mm-hmm. I, 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 let's go back to you saying you're a sponge, because that can also be a great thing, but it also can be, you know, quite difficult to be a sponge and absorb everything. Like people commenting or criticisms and things like that that. how do you (laughs) that's not absorbing art that's absorbing people's pain and that's a totally but i'm saying if you're a sponge in that if you're a sponge right doesn't doesn't like don't things like that ever well that's why my my greatest teacher anthony who sadly is no longer with us he died right after the book came out right before ash was born uh we used to talk about the concept of being a sieve not a sponge like everything just okay. passes through you and mm-hmm. out the other side mm-hmm. so that you don't have to keep any of it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's like, that's a fantastic metaphor for a good spiritual practice is you need to know when to be a sponge and absorb and keep something and when to be a sieve for art, for people's personalities, for media, for the environment. Um, you need to have the wisdom to know what you're supposed to hang on to and use and what you're supposed to let go of mm-hmm. because it's not useful. Okay. Um, but that you know. must have taken some time oh, to yeah. learn that. I'm working right? on it. I'm working on yeah. it as we speak. Yeah. I don't think that one's going to be mastered before there. I die. <laughs> what What is your spiritual practice? I mean, do you have... Mm. 
I'm a be here now person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I've been doing yoga and meditating since I was a teenager, but I don't have a hard, I wouldn't say that I have a hardcore practice. Were you raised, um, any specific? I was raised, uh, I, it's not quite fair to say I was raised Episcopalian, but I went to an Episcopalian church and sang in it when I was a kid. Um, but I didn't, you must've liked that. I liked the singing part and I actually like, no one ever gave me the memo that I was supposed to believe anything. So I just sort of looked at all (laughs) these crazy adults and (laughs) was like, uh, yeah, I liked, you know, I was sort of like everything that happened in between, uh, holding the sheet music or holding the hymnal was just like adults talking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just Mm -hmm. didn't pay much attention. Um, and I liked the ritual of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I still love going back to uh, the Episcopal Church on Christmas and taking communion and watching everyone in their, you know, in their mm-hmm. church. But I prefer, you know, I prefer art church. Um, and I, uh, I, I rely on my yoga practice and my meditation practice to keep me grounded. Um, although, you know, especially since having a kid, it's a lot of it has gone out the window. Yeah. Um, but that and my just general constant work and I, I'm always reading a book here or there on mindfulness or Buddhism or anything that has to do with, um, presence. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, you know, I don't belong to any particular cult. I am, I, I've seen enough of that to be completely turned off by the idea of belonging. I think you can start a cult. You'd be the one. I kind of have started a cult. Yeah, you (laughs) have. I think you have. I was just going to say that. Um, Yeah, definitely. But so, I mean, I'm filled with insecurities. And so I I would look to read your blog as soon as, like, especially after I had my daughter. Hmm. um, Because I, I mean, you were just so honest and open and... And insightful. And I, I really love, you Thank know, you. your writing, especially now, you know, with having a son and a marriage and you're so honest with everyone and open. Well, I and mean, there's I'm a lot, sure and there's a lot things, I can't talk about. Right. Too. I'm sure there are things that you can't talk about. Um, I still use my blog to, to work through stuff and to make myself feel better. And um, one of the things that really sucked about having a baby is I didn't have time and energy to even sit down and write about how difficult certain struggles were. And also being married to Neil, who's famous and needs privacy, is its own pain in the ass. Yeah, um, how does that work? I mean, you're so open and he's not, you know, and do you, ha- do you have to run things by him? I mean, does he ever say, I do. I, hey, Amanda, I'll... that's maybe too far? Or... Mm, I've never really crossed the line with him, but I also, mm-hmm. I, I'm very conservative about where the line is. Okay. And I've also, you know, I learned pre-Neil about the dangers of uh, invading other people's privacy on my blog. I and you must way. have people that feel that they really know you, you know, because yeah. of your relationship to your fans. Um, totally. That they cross a line, I'm sure. What do you mean? I, I mean, maybe they think they know you too well. You know, they really... No, you know, funny enough, I don't get that. No, that's And good. I think it's because... Maybe it is your honesty. I think it's mm-hmm. the... I think it's the same reason I've never, like, God forbid, I've never had a stalker. Like, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, I'm no I'm very fun surprised. to stalk. Yeah, what are they gonna? What are they gonna? Out what are they gonna find out? You wouldn't tell them. I'm like, go ahead, look through my trash. I've already 
put it on Instagram, like yeah. whatever, you know, yeah, that you are enjoy so the bloody tampons. They're all yours. <laughs> and that's just like the opposite of what a stalker wants. The stalker yeah, is yeah. into being able to get where everybody else can't go. And mm-hmm, I'm like, yeah, yeah it's everyone's, you. everyone's here. already in here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, with Neil, the difficult thing is that he, he draws his lines in totally different places. He's le- he's led a boundary to compartmentalized, and we all live compartmentalized lives, but we all choose our own styles. And he's just chosen a very different style than I have. And so that's just really interesting. And I... How do you make that work, though? It's you know, a, as a it's couple. Because you're both so, you know, strong there's and a, famous. There's and- a Venn diagram. And, you know, I mean, a lot of it is over in my department and a sliver of it is in his. But we know, having hung out with each other, we we know where the lines are. And we just have to stay within them. And sometimes it's incredibly frustrating because my, you know, my superpower before I met Neil was my ability to 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 dish out my pain onto the internet right. and find solace in my community. Mm-hmm. And if my pain happens to be my husband or the marital strife or the giant domestic disputes or mm-hmm. whatever, it can't go there. Um, we actually, we had this one moment and we both will remember this moment forever. And I've, I think I've, I may have vlogged about it, but I might've talked about it in an interview before. We were once in, we were in Cambridge. It was actually when I was working on cabaret at the American Repertory Theater. And he was supposed to meet me for lunch. I had a 40 minute equity rehearsal break. And he was supposed to meet me for lunch and I had this, I was on break from rehearsal with a huge cast and I had just this 40 minutes Mm -hmm. and we had picked a cafe and I left rehearsal and I raced over and I waited and he wasn't there. And I texted him and I said, Hey, I'm waiting. I only have 30 minutes left for lunch. We made this date. Are you on your way? And he was like, Oh yes, darling, I'm on my way. Uh, And then he wasn't there and another five or 10 minutes went by and he said, sorry, I'm just down the block at a meeting. And I, instead of texting him back, like, fuck you, you motherfucker, yeah. I, I tweeted. <laughs> and I tweeted something really passive aggressive, yeah. like, about the situation. I totally publicly <laughs> shamed him. And I was like, you know, I have my 40-minute equity <laughs> rehearsal break. My husband is 20 minutes late and is sending me texts that he's in a meeting with someone clearly more important than me. Da, 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 da. Whatever I said, it was wow. totally obnoxious. And, like, the inner Internet piled on Neil like you take your <laughs> and you know no one was actually mean but mm-hmm. even the faux mean and mm-hmm. the faux scolding and yeah, the faux right. shaming my was husband more would have committed handle. suicide <laughs> I am not kidding yeah. if, if that happened yeah. well yeah. and I mean it Let's still sucked for me he never showed up I yeah. was like I have to leave I haven't even eaten mm-hmm. fuck you I went back to my rehearsal but you then were hangry I was <laughs> I was hangry I never even ate I think I got a takeaway sandwich and had to stuff my face on the walk home that's not cool uh and also, you know, it was about the risk. This is the thing that comes up in our marriage on a daily basis. I'm sure you know nothing yeah. fucking about it. It nothing. was a respect thing. It didn't mm-hmm. come with a really apologetic text being like, mm-hmm. I know you only have a 40-minute rehearsal. I'm right. trying to get out. 
Uh, and if I can't, I'm so, so sorry, eat without me. It mm-hmm. was the, I'll be right there. Da, da, da. And we've done this to each other a million times, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest problem with me and Neil is that we're both so used to being the center of the fucking universe with a bunch of people around kissing our ass and saying, of course, of course, we'll do the thing. Yeah. That when we get in a room with each other, it's like... <laughs> yeah. No, you get it's me. It's ugly. You, no, you get me my tea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? <laughs> well, I'm Neil fucking Gaiman, I am. I'm like, do you know who I am, mister? Don't uh, make me tweet. Yes. <laughs> um, tweet a poll. But it was a really good little micro lesson yeah. in... I, had, I then had to be the one who apologized, and I was like, I'm sorry I brought our marriage onto Twitter. I won't do it again. Uh... It wasn't that bad. It was mm-hmm. a little tiff. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, I also, I learned that the hard way with my blog a few times. There was a, there was a in the early days of the Dresden Dolls, or actually at that point, the mid days of the Dresden Dolls, we were on a tour in Japan and Brian totally hit the wall, like hit slammed into the wall mm-hmm. on this tour. And I blogged about it. Oh, wow. And he, you know, he got a call from his mother. <laughs> and he just he really let me have it he was like you have to delete that blog and you can never write about my personal shit again and I was like that's fair yeah. <laughs> sorry yeah. mm-hmm. it hadn't occurred to me that that might hurt your feelings mm-hmm. and I'm sorry if it did mm-hmm. and that sensitized me in a way that nothing else had and you know it's it's one thing when you've got a blog you know back like I did in 2000 where my readership was 30 people and it was all right. my friends yeah and then and me. one, uh, yeah. And then one day you turn around and you're like, oh, "This is a really powerful tool that can be a weapon, right? And that can be yeah, a lot you of things." Grew and, with that, yeah. Well, I also applied all of that hard-earned knowledge to my book, where I had to stop myself and delete entire paragraphs again and again. Where I was like, "I'm not. I just. Find- I'm not going to throw these people under the bus. I'm not going to settle any scores. I need. This just needs to be about me." Delete, delete, delete. And even my editor was like, Amanda, delete, 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 delete. There's a lot of shit I had to... And, you know, sometimes I would be writing entire paragraphs knowing I was going to delete them. But I was like, I know motherfucking that. And then there's dickhead. And like, delete, 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 delete. So it's just a a practice. And I mean, I think one of the things that I appreciate about myself on social media that I see other artists getting wrong is they haven't learned that yet. Mm -hmm. They still go to Twitter and score settle and insult mm-hmm. people and yeah. rip and tear down other people's work. And I'm like, you just, you just shouldn't do it. It yeah. helps. It helps nobody. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, but that's, I think maybe, isn't that the way it is though now? You know, no. I mean, do you think no, people are used can... to that? I mean, that's the way it's heading. No, headed. I think, I think human beings are still human beings. And I and I mean, you're going to have your angry, aggressive, score settling, shouty human beings. And you're mm-hmm. going to have the human beings who hopefully are evolving into a way of figuring out that we don't have to communicate that way. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of, uh, you know, anger and insults, when all of them pretty much aren't necessary. Yeah. If we're really just trying to get shit done. Right. So, um, how did you come about, this is a big question, but how did you come, come around to having a child? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's something I'm really want to know. Uh, that is a really complicated question. Yeah. I mean, 
and a very long story. Mm-hmm. I uh, I delayed even thinking about thinking about having a child until I was in my 30s. So when I was in my 20s, I just didn't really think about it one way or another. Mm-hmm. It was this thing that I would think about in my 30s. That's, That's that was how just I felt. that was yeah. just and I didn't have a I didn't have a partner in my 20s mm-hmm. and I was ex- and the Dresden dolls were exploding. So there was no point in thinking about it cuz I wasn't going to do it. I was mm-hmm. on the road, single, in a rock band that was exploding. Right. That's what I was doing. Yeah. And then, you know, if anyone would ever ask me, I'd be like, I don't know. I mean, ask, check in ask with me, me when I'm 35. Yeah. Um, and then I met Neil. And when Neil and I got married, it was like this giant, burning, obvious question mm-hmm. that became binary. Because it wasn't a question of whether I had a partner. Right. I had a partner, mm-hmm. uh, but I had a weird partner. I had a partner who was 16 years older than me with grown, three grown children, one of whom is closer to my age than Neil, than, than, uh, closer to my age than to Neil's age. Does that make sense? Yes. So, uh, I am closer in age to, uh, to Neil's son than, than okay. Neil is. Okay. So, uh, I really struggled deeply. Um, I had had an abortion when I was 17 and I, I don't rack that up as one of the most difficult experiences of my life. It was hard. Um, but as abortions go, it was a pretty good one, (laughs) which is like, which is, which is important to say because there's a whole (laughs) spectrum of abortions and I've had a few and that Mm -hmm. one was not that bad. Uh I was 17 it was with my you boyfriend, was, who yeah. I was deeply in love with, but I was like, 17. I'm 17, I'm mm-hmm. still in high school. I told my mother, my mother and my boyfriend took me to Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. I, was oh, a support, nice. I was as supported as That's possible. Yeah. I had yeah. to deal with the shitty protesters, but, right. you know. Um, and, and I didn't struggle with the decision. Um, I struggled with the giantness of, oh my God, I'm pregnant and I'm getting an abortion, but I didn't struggle with the decision. Uh, and then I was very lucky, you know, I, I, I didn't get accidentally pregnant for a very, very, very long time. And then Neil and I, um, got accidentally pregnant when I was about 32 or 33. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. I think I was 33 or maybe 34. Uh, and we, I wrote about this in my book. We, we kind of just had a tragic pregnancy. I had taken an antibiotic, not knowing I was pregnant and then found out I was pregnant and the antibiotic was like a baby killer. And I, I, you know, I, I had a, that was sort of a nightmare abortion. I, I believed the gynecologist. So I was overseas at the time and I went to see a gynecologist and she told me that if I wanted to, I could take the abortion pill. And in, and I didn't do much research. I was just like, oh, that sounds easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I wouldn't recommend it. It was really? it was like a nightmare, 24 hours. Of, More pain? It was More... really, really painful. There was a lot of vomiting. There was a lot. It was wow. basically like having a, mis- a hardcore miscarriage oh, wow. with all the painful cramping. It basically induces labor. 
Wow, uh, I didn't know that. So, and Neil and I, we had just gotten married. And we didn't, we weren't strong enough as a couple to really make it through that one unscathed. Mm-hmm. It really scarred us. And, you know, as you can imagine with something like that, like it was a real trial by fire. We weren't at home. You know, I was in the middle of a run of shows. It was, Jesus. it was hell. Um, but we made it. And, uh, and it, it made us a lot more sensitive to each other. And I, you know, and I, I wrote about that in the book and that was one of the hardest chapters to write. And actually to Neil's credit, uh, my first draft of the book didn't have that story in it. And he read the book and he said, you have to tell that story about oh, our marriage. Wow. Okay. So what mixed signals? Well, <laughs> I had to tell it. Yeah. He wouldn't yeah. have told it for the world. Right. <clears throat> but he was right. It, he, it, He's a writer. <laughs> well, and he also knew that if, if the, if the book was really going to work and our marriage was going to be mm-hmm. real and human, I, I wasn't allowed to just skip over that story. Yeah. Um, because it was all in the mix of right at the That's time. That's a defining moment. Yeah, and the book is all based right around that time. So skipping that story was... But I, it's funny, because I had more or less left it out out of respect for Neil. Because oh. I thought that he would appreciate the privacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, then he, and then he flipped it. So that, that was But really it would have been different, though, if he would have blogged about it, right? If he would have... Yes, but Neil, I mean, Neil wouldn't, right? Yes, and Neil doesn't ever write memoir, and he doesn't Mm -hmm. blog about personal stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's, it was almost, it was Mm -hmm. almost spiritual, because it was like he was speaking through me. Uh I'm the TMI one. I'm the one who overshares. I'm the one who, you know, who, I'm like... In, in our marriage, I'm called the queen of feelings. <laughs> You're the queen of feelings, darling. I'm just over here making dinner. I'm, like, I'm oh. the one with feelings. I'm the one with feelings. Uh, like a Brit. Yes, you P.S. British and like making the woman carry the whole emotional load, mm-hmm. whatever. That's a yeah. topic for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I had another abortion a few years later by choice because I just freaked out and was not ready. And that one was the hardest because it was like, I could, it was like, you could, I could have. Yeah. And I had the choice and, um, I have no regrets about it because I'll always, I mean, it's like when you're pro choice and you want to defend a woman's choice, you make the choice and then that's the choice. Mm -hmm. That's it. Again, like, it's a binary. You can't kind of have a baby. And I, I, I spent a couple of months in complete meditative, spiritual, confused, chaotic hell looking for an answer. Like, How old is, were you around this time? 35 maybe or 36? 36 maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. 36 or 37. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. It's all a blur. Uh, and that's the hardest one to talk about and the hardest one to share because I don't have an excuse, a so-called excuse, Mm -hmm. but it's also the one ready. Isn't that enough? Right. And it's why it feels like the most powerful story 
Mm -hmm. Um, But also to people who are pro-life, the most indefensible story. But it's also why it's the most powerful story. Because it should be enough for a woman to just say, I don't think I'm ready. Yeah, or just don't want to. Or I don't think I want to. Yeah. And... It's one of the things that I, I worry about, you know, when I look at the whole conversation around abortion centering around, you know, when there's incest and when there's rape and when there's, you know, problems parameters. with the fetuses and all these parameters, yeah. it, can, it, can, it can really shower all of this accidental guilt on the women who are like, what if I just don't want a baby? That's what what I if guess. I just, I'm not ready? What if I just don't love this guy and I don't mm-hmm. think I want to do it? Is that allowed? And mm-hmm. we, as the survivors, like the gazillions of, you know, women on the other side who have gone through the experience mm-hmm. and survived it just because we made the choice, mm-hmm. have to also stand against, you know, stand against the insanity and stand with the women who were raped and were victims of incest and, you know, and had you know, fetuses with Down syndrome and Mm -hmm. had the, you know, and even then the decision is difficult, Mm -hmm. but it's like, we all have to stand together and say, it's a choice. Yeah. No matter what is going on, it's your body and you get to choose whether you want to be a mother to this child. Really at the core of it, Mm -hmm. no one can make you feel guilty. Nobody for any reason Really, it's just you and you, and you're allowed to feel empowered about your choice. And I'm me, and I've been through everything I've been through, and I, and I still have a hard time just saying I had an abortion because I wasn't ready. Because yeah. there's this little part of me that's like, I don't know, maybe I should have just done it. And there's another part of me that feels guilty that I I feel so much more empowered telling that story because I've since had a child and that's given me some kind of legitimacy because then I went on to do it. I think it would be a lot harder. And I know because I was living in that space for a long time to say, yeah, I just never wanted a kid. I had a bunch of abortions, mm-hmm. you know, because you sort of feel like a witch. Right. But you're not. Um, and so, you know, and I also just went through a miscarriage. So I feel like, you know, my womb has been through every possible mm-hmm. <laughs> iteration. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that it's this way. And I don't like that I feel like I have all of these experiences and now can more legitimately say X, Y, and Z about abortion or about natural childbirth or about miscarriage. Um, but be that as it may, I... I feel pretty unshakable in all of these departments right now to, to speak with shamelessness about everything that I've been through and every choice that I made and defend any woman's decision to have a child any way she wants, mm-hmm. to have an abortion, to talk openly about her miscarriage, to deal with her womb openly, no matter what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find that um, I, what I'm seeing now online is that whole, you know, well, the anatomical scan isn't available till X amount of weeks. And that's the knee-jerk reaction. Like if if your child is going to be, you know, special needs or whatever, that you you can decide to terminate. And that's, that's legitimate. But everything else, 
you know, I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing a knee-jerk reaction to whatever you choose. Mm-hmm. You know, what it, if you're not ready, if you're, you know, you, don't, you never hear that as but, the argument. But we know the statistics. Mm-hmm. And we know that one in four women in America has had an abortion. Mm-hmm. Right. And we know that it's statistic, statistically impossible mm-hmm. that something just happened to be wrong with all of those fetuses. Right, right, right. right. You know? I, there was nothing wrong. Uh, <laughs> and so the next step in feminist and humanist evolution is just an acceptance that women can make these choices for themselves, know what they're doing, can live shamelessly and powerfully, mm-hmm. um, and make these decisions supported by the community, mm-hmm. you know, and one step further when we're completely involved, not just supported by the community, but with the understanding that even if you're choosing to have an abortion because you decide, oh my God, you know, I got accidentally pregnant, I got pregnant, period, I'm not ready to have this child, you still have to go through a period of grieving. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like, oh, do 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 do. Can I just walk down the street and get my abortion and I'm fine? I'll be right, right. Meet you at Target. I can't, yeah. I can't meet. Yeah, I can't meet you for coffee. I'm getting. Um, meet you in and that's that's some really complicated spiritual department because, mm-hmm. you know, even though you're making the decision to terminate a pregnancy, um, that doesn't mean that you're not going to grieve and have heavy duty emotional feelings about it and go through the mess of hormones and all of the um, necessary processing and grieving that you have to do when you have an abortion and you have to do when you have a miscarriage and society doesn't really have space for it. It doesn't have a ritual for it. It doesn't even have a name for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas in other cultures, there are. So we, we need to do that. You know, it's why, like, (laughs) well, my, I feel like my little plot of real estate with my blog, with Mm -hmm. my own community, I've been really open about my abortions. I've been really open about my miscarriage. Yeah. And every time you're open, like every time you're open about that, the stories just flood in. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I bet. Everybody has gone through it. Mm -hmm. Everyone's sister has gone through it. Everyone's wife has gone through it. Mm -hmm. Like it's everywhere. Mm Mm-hmm. Everyone around the dinner table has a story, but someone has to start always, right. and then it floods. Yeah. Um, but it's so taboo, no one ever goes there. Yeah. I think it's incredible that you're the one that's, you know, you're the one that starts. I mean, we had Lydia lunch on, and, um, you know, she was the first time we ever heard the word patriarchy, you know. But I think with you... I've heard she's not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was a little that on the is fence. Um, but but with you, like I I find like the self acceptance and kind of going out there and being so honest with people and opening yourself up to conversation and you know talking about things that are taboo, like that you wouldn't normally talk about. I think you're the first one to kind of open yourself up on the internet like that. I don't know. Have you ever seen Penny Arcade? No, yes. But I mean on the internet, you know, with like fans and like so that anyone, Penny, you know, was in clubs and was in, you know, the recordings. You had to be a fan kind of. You're out there. You're completely out there in the world for anyone who wants to read. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't really know if there's anyone that has done that. Well, there's... It's a movement. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of but us. But I think you and may have spearheaded that movement. I, I think it's more of a zeitgeist. 
you know, I think... Um, yeah, okay. I mean, here's hoping it's a zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even when I had my miscarriage, which was, you know, just a couple months ago... Um, oh, sorry about I, that. Thank you. It was rough. Yeah, um, I I'm really sorry. I, um, I found some beautiful writing online by women who were really, not only really open about their experiences, but really encouraging of um, other women opening up about it. I saw a really great, funny uh, article that, I forget who the actress was, but there was an actress who had had a miscarriage and she just, she just goes right there and talks about, you know, being whatever she was a couple, you know, a couple, three months pregnant and being in Whole Foods as blood starts gushing down her legs. And she's like, I was in Whole Foods. I was carrying my toddler. Shit happens. I had to deal with it. And then I had to face, you know, what we were just talking about. The fact that there's not a spot in society that allows you to discuss it. Mm -hmm. And she said something great in this piece. I think maybe she wrote it for Slate or The Guardian or something. And she was saying, you're allowed to just say it. Tell your barista, I'm having a really hard day. I had a miscarriage yesterday. Go for it. And I was like, mm-hmm. woohoo, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. It, it is not this, you know, this terrible dark secret that you mm-hmm. have to hide in the closet but and only tell your partner new, about. though, right? I mean, I mean when I... But thank Christ. To, I know, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I'm saying you were doing this a long time ago, you know, 15 I years ago. I mean, because ago. when I, I was in Germany and I started spotting and then the doctor called, I had gotten... Um, a test, and I, I, I was pregnant once, and uh, I knew nothing about it, and you know, I didn't read about it because I had panic attacks, and you know, Vince did all the reading, and so the doctor called. I was on tour with him, and and they said, you know, you have the protein for Down syndrome, and it was an assistant, um, uh, not even a nurse. So she basically told me that my kid had <laughs> Down syndrome. She goes, you need to come in tomorrow for an amnio. And I said, well, I'm in Germany. I can't come in, you know, and I'm not going to go here. And um, so I freaked out, you know, I freaked out. So I just remember going online while Vince was being pulled off stage because I was flipping out. Oh, God. Uh, looking up uh, celebrities who have had kids with Down syndrome, celebrities who have had miscarriages. And Sharon Stone came up, and she had given an interview about how all the miscarriages she had. And I found real solace in that. But even though she didn't really talk about it, she just mentioned that Mm -hmm. it happened to her, and I felt comforted. Yeah. I mean, that's the first place I went. If I had, like, somebody like you in real time talking about Mm -hmm. it and the pain and how you're struggling with Mm -hmm. it and you know all of this it would have been a much different and it's how Vince didn't care one way or the other if the kid had Down syndrome or not he He, thought it might be a good thing because the kid would be happy and pleasant would be kind and nice and kind to people because you don't want to have an asshole I'd rather have you know, I never really thought about it that way. Because yeah, it's not your that's the child's not gonna be an well, asshole. So the thing that I find so powerful about this now mm-hmm. is that this is what's happening now with women. There mm-hmm. has just been a quilt of shame. A quilt. And you don't mm-hmm. talk about it. And occasionally you'll have someone kind of poking up. But women are just getting the memo that when we just ditch it and talk about our experiences that's that's the moment the world is going to evolve and progress is going to happen mm-hmm. and it's and now and like when it happens it's infectious 
So that's what's happening with the Me Too movement. It's mm-hmm. like you only need a few women to put their hands up, and then a, and then you'll the millions of women right behind them going, "Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god!" Right? It wasn't just me. It was, mm-hmm. it was you. It was yeah. you. It was you. It was all. Oh, oh my god! Mm-hmm. And so that's that's incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, I I will never forget like the full on like smack in the face realization a few years ago that all of the things all of the doom and gloom all of the like nihilism about climate change and politics and the earth collapsing like it would all be so easily fixable if women just like got our you know got the Mm -hmm. shit together dismantled the structure as it is and we're just like enough Mm -hmm. like it just has not been working for so long guys Mm-hmm. Can we just step back? Can we just step back and make this finally work without all of the ridiculous shame? And that is sort of what like when I when I read about climate change, when I read about the other, you know, giant cultural uh, boogeyman, boogeyman, non-gender specific mm-hmm. boogeyman. Uh, <laughs> I just, I just am like, I think we might just barely make it. I think yeah, we might catch I'm up. very hopeful. Because you get a fucking bunch of women together and it's like lights mm-hmm. on. And that's hopefully what's going to infectiously happen all over the planet over the next 10, 20, 30 years in time to, mm-hmm. you know, it's just such a disease that needs eradicating. Before well, I that. think that also, I mean, that's also why I'm fascinated with your, you know, the way you live your life is this kind of artist, not kind of, but an artist in this bohemian kind of way with the sun. And you're not really, you know, you don't really live the way other people may live. And you're still, you know, in, in motherhood doing your own thing and, making your own way and that's something that you've always done i mean like your your record label back when you were had a you know a contract um with the dresden dolls and you know you got out of it and you did crowdfunding and you're the queen of crowdfunding and you know all this stuff if you 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 have such a i mean i'm sure you're very vulnerable and fragile as a person because you're an artist but you have a very strong because i'm a human because you're a human too, but, but, but even more so, you know, I mean, you're an artist and you, you are a sponge and you do take everything in and, um, but you you, you have this, you, you must have this really, really strong core to you to kind of feel like I could, if this is the way I want to live, this is what I'm going to do. If this is how I'm comfortable, I'm doing it. I'm, you know, it's, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I find that fascinating that you can figure out what works for you and just, you know, do it. One of the things that I love the most about my blog and nowadays my Patreon, which is sort of like thankfully taken the place of the old school blog, which I felt like I lost in the fray of social media. Um, and I love reading the comments on my Patreon after, you know, I blogged yesterday about, um, the real, like, sort of like creepy guilt that I grappled with. Yes, not, we not read marching. that. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And See, that's what I, I you know, love. I made a choice like a week ago. It was one of the only days, the only day that I was going to get to spend with just Neil and Ash because Neil decided to go off, uh, 
no shade, honey, but a little bit of shade. Uh, he decided, to, you know, this was going to be our week at home, and Neil decided to fill it with work. So he's off in L.A., and we were going to have this one day together. Mm-hmm. And it was the day of the march. Uh, and I just thought, oh, God, how do I choose this? Uh, it's a pretty easy choice. I'll spend it with, you know, I'll spend it with my kid and with Neil. Um and, you know, and I got to feel sanctimonious because I had donated a bunch of money to the march. And But I I still, like, I went to bed that night just feeling like a piece of shit. And I, and I blogged, I just laid it out. And I just blogged about how I felt old and I felt like mm-hmm. I was watching the world, you know, just yeah. go on without me through my window. And the comments back on my blog were... were as often happens, way better than the blog itself. And most of my readers aren't so-called professional artists or professional writers. They're just people. They're, mm-hmm. they're nurses and tech people and students. And I mean, they're all walks of life. And there are a lot of them, the vast majority of them, or at least the ones who are taking the time to comment, they're all living like that. They're living really you know, hopefully self-examined, authentic lives where they're juggling this and juggling the sick parent and the kid and the social activism and the mindfulness and the addiction and, 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 the whole pile of Mm -hmm. humanness. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't enjoy doing this. I wouldn't enjoy the job. I wouldn't enjoy the blog if everything that was being reflected back at me was like a bunch of bohemian artists, you know, Mm -hmm. living my same lifestyle. Mm -hmm. What touches me and what, and what thrills me is how similar we all are. It doesn't matter. I mean, we are at core all so vulnerable and all so sensitive. And then it's just whatever gets piled on top of that. Mm -hmm. Everybody's story, everybody's upbringing everybody's situation, mm-hmm. everybody's spouse, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. But underneath it all, I just see the same thing over and over and over and over again. People struggling, yeah. trying to deal, trying to do the right thing, failing, judging themselves, starting over endlessly. Mm-hmm. But there are, th- there are ways that, that you express that, that, um, you know, not everybody can or does. Mm-hmm. Well, that's I mean, sort of that's sort of my art form. Yeah, yeah. And also, like any kind of art form, I've gotten better at it. I wasn't, you know, I tried. If you look back at my blogs when I was twenty-five, you know, I'm really sad today. Da da da. Like, I was pretty good at expressing myself, but not as good as I am now. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had almost twenty years to practice mm-hmm. talking about the bizarre, complex, multi-layered feelings of, you know, excitement, joy, shame, and guilt, and all of the mix of it that goes into any given human day, that I like to think that while I've gotten better as a songwriter, I've gotten better as a social media maker, I've gotten better at a, you know, at actually producing music and sounds, I've also gotten better at explaining how it feels to be a human being. That's like its yeah, own Yeah, I mean, your job. book is is incredible and we just we were just we just each bought the audiobook congratulations for being back on the list um, because you. that is a it's an experience you feel like you're really getting an experience with that book and 
it's like therapy too. It's hearing yeah. another woman that's and being told a story and hearing a story is yeah. different from reading a story. It's, yes. I think it's more powerful. I think it's. I, I it's also absolutely. think it's fascinating. You know, me being a writer, that you recorded your audio book before you were done with the hardcover of the book. Correct. I actually used it as part of the editing process. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine that. I mean, was your editor freaking out? Like you're handing in all these changes, and did they have to transcribe things too? I mean, I because you couldn't there. have written everything sat- down, right? Oh, I did. You didn't just speak some of the stuff and they had to make the changes or I literally sat there with a pen. Really? With the entire manuscript, which was yep. not you know, which was ninety nine percent done. Mm-hmm. And if I hit a snag and a sentence that you know, the amazing thing about recording my audiobook when I did, because I didn't plan it that way. Yeah. I was just like, maybe I'll catch a typo. Um, because it had already been copy edited. It was done. Yeah, I mean that, that's the way it goes. <laughs> um and there were, way. <laughs> there were mistakes yeah. because certain things just don't jump out at you until you hear them read and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, that's just not right. That's not the way it gets said. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I probably made 30 or 40 changes to the book in the, in the recording studio. And I just sat there with a pen. I was like, I have a running list. Dear Emily, So you noted sorry. every single change yeah. that you were making. Yeah. Okay. Wow. There were also a few changes that I made to the audiobook to just make it more conversational that mm-hmm. I didn't put into the reading okay. book because mm-hmm. they just did, because it was fine. Right. But then there were certain things with the audiobook like where your was side like, notes to your mom and stuff. No, those are all in the book. <laughs> they are. Um but n- certain things, I don't know. I mean, I can't even remember at this point, but there were, you know, if it was a word here or there where I was like it doesn't matter, but this just feels more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um I made some off-the-cuff improv changes, and I was like, no one's ever going to know. Yeah. I think this is loud. Is this allowed? I, I love um, your songs, too, in the audiobook. Thank I mean, you. the songs you included, and that the... I, I, I just felt like I had a nervous breakdown in the 90s, and I listened to Laurie Anderson's stories of the Nerve Bible. Oh. Over, like, seriously, I listened to it all day and all night. Her it voice did not stop. Her voice. So and I got calming. the same feeling with your audiobook. Yeah. I felt that way. I felt the, like I... The, were the altos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I felt the same way about Laurie Anderson. Mm-hmm. Big Science and Bright Red were like yeah. these two go-tos. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed with her to help me get through this, you know, mental breakdown. And I yeah. feel like I felt really the same way listening to your audiobook. And I know you're helping a lot of people get through some rough shit. And and you're so open to hearing about that too, which is when when I was going through my thing with Laurie, there wasn't the internet really, and you, you know she didn't she doesn't communicate with with people. I mean fans. You know what's so beautiful and, about that is the poetry of her her voice or a voice being the the lifeline because she has that beautiful story. And do you know the ugly one with the jewels? Yes, that beautiful story. Uh, tightrope yeah where she talks about being mm-hmm. right on death's doorstep yes. and this man's voice just being the actual the thread that's keeping her connected to life yeah and that's how I felt about music yeah. I mean it's why I went into songwriting and rock and roll instead of any other medium mm-hmm. because I felt like music was my lifeline and my my connective thread to the universe when Mm -hmm. I felt totally crazy and totally alone as a teenager. Mm -hmm. It was these voices that were 
calling me from my home planet and yeah. I can come yeah, back, right. it's going to be okay. Yeah, 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 right, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, and I mean, I that's also, it's funny, if you think of a voice not just as a voice, but as an instrument, mm-hmm. you know, that our voices actually are musical instruments, we just don't call them that. Mm-hmm. It, it sticks the audiobook and all of this stuff in the same pile as music. Mm-hmm. It's this, we respond, we have this emotional, deep, primal emotional response to the music of the human voice mm-hmm. and what it means and what it does to us. Do you think you'll write another book or... Her. I don't know. Yeah. Not today. You're not planning on it now. <laughs> with you know, a song with while, a two-year-old. <laughs> no. While I yeah. was writing my, uh, while I was editing my first book, my only book, mm-hmm. uh, I must have told a half a dozen friends of mine, like, don't let me do this again. <laughs> don't do let me the, agree take my keys. Don't let me do it. Yeah. Don't let me do it again. I didn't feel that way about childbirth. Really? No. I yeah. loved it. Oh, God. <laughs> it's audio, oh but you have to see God. the look on their faces. Holy shit. Uh, I loved worst. it. I loved Good it. Good for you. Man. I was totally ready to do it again. Um, but I also, I, I, got, I had a really lucky, delicious experience. Okay, ours wasn't. I was ready horrific. to do it again, even though mine was horrific. Yeah, not me, I, man. Why? It's a chest Please tell me. Like, no way. I, well, I, I just got, like, I measured quads. I had one daughter. She was six six weeks early. I was bedridden the whole time. Ugh. I had an emergency C-section. I had panic disorder. My, my doctor's like, Wait, we have to open you, you up now. quads? No, I was I measured that big. What is that? Because mean? I swelled like I, I had I had like tumors wow. that got just grew like size of basketballs with Holy my shit. fighting for the blood supply, you know, with my baby. And wow. one doctor said, You're gonna die, and so was your kid. Oh, when I kind. was and we right. should we need to terminate. We need to terminate, and even then you may die. That's what they told me. <sighs> yeah. That when was, when I that was, was I just a very in. pleasant day for you. It was, and having panic disorder, <laughs> I handled family. it really well the rest of my pregnancy. <laughs> so every day I was like, Michael, she, this is it. She I'm literally had to rent an apartment across the street from the hospital. Yeah, just in case. Just the for her Columbia. own. Yeah. No, this is from panic. So you could yeah. get there. So yes. I could know that, like, I there's a chance I could survive if. You know, whatever. That's really wise that you did that, though, said, for yourself. Yeah, you I mean, to do it. well, I still cried and panicked every single day. Oh, my God. Which is why I'm like. Did it, when you look at it in retrospect, did it help you? Um, in, I don't know. It, I got it, through it. Well, but and was it a, that which does I not blame myself you? as to why my daughter has so many issues, you know, why? that I acted that way, that I had uh, those problems. That. And I, it's what I do. <laughs> it's what I do. <laughs> Yeah, stop doing that. <laughs> okay. okay, I can live like that. I can stop doing it. Yeah, um, you can just stop doing that. Yeah. It'd be amazing. Okay, great. Now, every single day, that's what I do. I go through the scenario. Yeah. Yeah. What would happen if you stopped doing that? Um, I'd be probably a happier person. Maybe you should stop doing that. Maybe <laughs> but why would I want to do that? Why would I want to be happier? Just try it for a few days. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, it's... But you, but, so how was childbirth? Um, emergency C-section. She's like, we're gonna, we have to take her out, like, right now. Yeah. I was like, oh, she said, we have to take her out. And I was like, oh, okay, you know. 
From which when? Direction? When? <laughs> you know, which later on in the week or Friday? She's right like, now. right now. Why? Right now. What was happening? Um, sure, her, um, the, my amniotic fluid, something completely something different from what my issue was. Probably interrelated, though. Yeah, but yeah, they said, think so. she said it was completely different, that I had low amniotic fluid, but I... I I wow. think it was probably so low amniotic but... fluid, and then they just did a C-section six weeks early. Yeah, and, and then, then, you, and then a, baby a baby was crying in the room, and I said, "Michael, somebody had a baby," because <laughs> I didn't think I you would weren't have there it. yet. You weren't no, there no, yet. I didn't think it was possible for me to have a ch- a baby. Like a, I thought I was going to die. A living. And child. I weren't even thinking about the baby. Die. You were just concerned. With I surviving. thought she was going to die. Yeah. You know, I thought we were both going to die, and that's so, what I was told. So how did the first few days, weeks? How were you just in total shock? I was in. Yeah, I just couldn't. When I held her, still, when I look at her, I can't believe she's real. Are you real. Yeah. Are you wow. really my child? Like, I, did oh. I really have you? It's a real, um, I, it's something I still can't get my, wrap my head around. You're not alone. I yeah. look at this child. I forget, like, I forget that I have yeah. a child. And then, like, it fucking hits me. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And I don't quite believe it for a couple of seconds. And I'm like, no, no, I know that happened. Yeah. I know, like, I have pictures on my phone. I'm it's that. <laughs> but I'm like, is it real? Yeah. I they kind call of you don't. mom? Like, yeah, I'm not quite sure. Mine doesn't. It. Yours calls you Tracy. Yeah, Tracy and Vince. Yeah. Ash calls Neil Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Does he really? Yeah. Oh, it's Neil Gaiman. It's just started. It's Mr. Gaiman. Mama. Neil Mama Gaiman. and Neil Gaiman. That's hilarious. So, how was your birth? Did you did you also have a C-section? Yeah. 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 Eventually, yeah. after being in labor for twenty hours. Yeah, and wow. then the heart started. I was like, that's it. Yeah. You know, and my doctor didn't even show up, and then. They forgot about me in the hospital. Oh, I had a fever. So you had a and nightmare. The doctor birth. came in and said, "I thought you left yesterday." In the wilds of Maine, and wow. I said, "No, I haven't been discharged, and I have a fever." And they were like, "Oh, you've been discharged. You can go." So I went home, went back to my appointment the next day, and they said, "We have to open you back up right now in the office because you have an infection." And so oh they did God. with the with the scalpel right there. Open my C section back up, and they said we have to leave it open. It has to heal from the inside. You're going to have a nurse come every day and take the gauze out. I was impacted. I had yeah. a vac pack, something to suck out the poison that I had to carry around oh and shower God. with. You asked us. You asked us our birth story. So for wow. five months. Um, so you were I had in labor. An open wound. So you were in labor for twenty hours. Yeah, pretty much. And then they C-sectioned, mm-hmm. and then it got infected. Yeah, and talk about you know your partner is there for the long haul. I mean, he was my nurse. He had to take the gauze out of me. Plus, you had a baby. Plus, we had a baby. His mother had just died oh, from lung cancer, wow. which was horrible. And, uh, yeah, we made it through that. And that's every time we, we sort of face an obstacle, I'm just like, well, we made it through that. not that. It wasn't that. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. You guys are such twins. We are twins. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse. <laughs> that we are. Um, so we ask all of our guests um, to give us a strange woman throwback. Someone who you look to... Um, I know it's difficult no. um, to oh. think about, but 
Uh, I mean, there's so many yeah. I could choose from. We could choose a couple, and uh, I mean, two one. two people came to mind instantly. Um, the Marquesa di Casati. Do you know her? No. Oh God. Okay, she's a total uh, tens, hundreds, tens, twenties nutball. Um, she was a, she was a Marchesa. She was an Italian countess, mm-hmm. and she was a complete uh, like freakazoid heiress. You know, sort of if you combined, you know, like Paris Hilton and Andy Warhol. She was just a. <laughs> she was like she Take was a a completely self absorbed art fag party girl okay. who had inherited all of this wealth and through, I know who you're talking and about. through these lavish crazy know. parties in her giant palaces that she owned all over Europe and she was you know it's like at the dawn of electricity she demanded that they have a light bulb party and she had a dress fashioned out of light bulbs for her costume and that kind of shit she had pet cheetahs <laughs> uh, she had pet snakes she uh, she wanted her eyes to look really black, so she put poisonous belladonna in them every morning, which possibly eventually killed her. Yes. Uh, Fashion victim. Not a role model, but a really strange woman and worth reading about in the uh, in the art party department. There's a there's a book about her called Infinite Variety, which is just just the stories themselves are so nutballs. It's worth reading about. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Kathy Acker, who Neil introduced me to, uh, and I don't see Neil fangirl very often, and he fangirls about Kathy Acker, um, and he got to know her before she died, and she, if you've never read her work, she's sort of in the like Penny Arcade, Lydia Lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, no holds barred. She just sticks it on the page and you're like, page after page, I cannot believe that she's saying this. Oh my God. Ah, she's just painfully honest about, uh, shamelessness and sexuality and, uh, her inner monologue and her inner life. Uh, and she died really tragically of probably treatable breast cancer um, when she was, I think, only in her late 40s or early 50s um, because she didn't have insurance and didn't catch it. Oh, and, fuck. Uh, uh, and her her work is, and a lot of it is um, her, her copyrights were very fucked up because she was sort of like a mashup artist. She would just steal shit mm-hmm. and put it in, into print in her books. She was like a... <laughs> She was like a literary DJ. And so I think a lot of her stuff can't even go back into print right, because of copyright of... issues. But if you can get a hold of um, Blood and Guts in high school, it's just one of those like sweet, generous, there's just nothing like it. You should read it books. Um, and yeah, and also I, when Neil recommends things to me, specifically to me, I usually listen because he knows... You know, he knows the world literary catalog pretty well and he knows me pretty well. And one of the first things he said when he met me was, have you, you have not read Kathy Acker? Mm-hmm. And I went out and got it and was like, oh my God, he, 
I'm s I never would have discovered this. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also, it takes me on a nice tangent about Neil because Neil is, he's just one of the best feminists I know and he's not flag waving overt about it, but he's so impressed by and in love with and, uh, and a champion of women in general. I can tell when he talks about art and when he talks about craft and when he talks about writing, uh, he just doesn't gender, mm -hmm. you know, he, I think he's probably a bigger fan of Ursula Le Guin than he was of Ray Bradbury, mm -hmm. the way he talks about her and talks about her craft. And I love that about him. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the, it's just one of the plus sides of him being such a fucking weirdo. It's like he sees, <laughs> he sees beyond everything. You sometimes can't have a normal conversation with him, but he also mm -hmm. sees beyond gender because he gets that it's just this bullshit construct, which is very refreshing. Yeah. Oh man, I gotta say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time with us. We appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you, Amanda.